It's become a familiar refrain in the push and pull over development in Massachusetts. When a project of some kind is proposed, local officials and residents often say the development would harm the historic character of their community. Maintaining local control over what gets built and where it gets built is the great savior of communities and is the final line of defense in the battle to preserve what's made them special. That at least is typically how we've come to think about these conflicts over development. Garrett Nelson says we've got it all wrong. In fact, he says just the opposite is true. Nelson argues that local control has often been the driving force behind development that has done great harm to the historic character of Massachusetts cities and towns. Nelson is a historical geographer. He has a PhD in geography from the University of Wisconsin and serves as president and head curator at the Leventhal Map and Education Center at the Boston Public Library. He wrote a provocative essay recently for Commonwealth Magazine laying out the case for the damage done by local control. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and we're delighted to have Garrett Nelson join us today on the podcast. Welcome, Garrett. Hi, Michael. It's great to be here. So we're really glad to have this chance to dig into these issues uh, a bit further with you. Uh, your piece generated a tremendous amount of interest on our website. Um, and so I want to start just by reading one passage from it that tees up your argument. Um, Massachusetts municipalities, you wrote, have rarely been good stewards of their own historical character when given free reign to exercise the powers of their local land use controls. In fact, the opposite is closer to the truth. For much of the 20th century, and still to this day, town-level control of development has been one of the primary culprits of historic destruction. In Massachusetts, those are, those are fighting words. Uh, so explain what you mean when you say local control has been a primary culprit in historic destruction, not the great defender of historic preservation. So one thing I've always been interested in is this kind of way that localism and uh, sort of small scale, neighborhood scale government uh, kind of gets uh, portrayed in the United States with an automatic golden glow, right? We think of local control almost always as a good thing, more democratic, more participatory, um, certainly, when you think about the kind of historic myths of uh, a place like Massachusetts or New England, the image of the town meeting uh, looms large in that in that myth making. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of tend to take it as a default that uh, more local participation, more local control will help uh, ameliorate some of our concerns about modern development. Right. Uh, it'll help preserve the historic character of places, uh, which is the subject of this essay. Uh, but more broadly, right, it will put citizens uh, in control of their own fate uh, in, in powerful ways. And while there are certainly things to be said about uh, the power and importance of local government uh, in all aspects of, of civic life, uh, there's also a, a flip side to that coin. And I think when we really take a, a kind of hard look at at this question of have uh, cities and towns in Massachusetts actually done a good job at what we say that they're doing a good job at, right? Have they done a good job at, at protecting their local landscapes uh, from historic discussion uh, destruction? Uh, the answer is uh, pretty clearly no. Uh, and in the essay, I lay out some both 
concrete the statistical evidence to back that up, uh, as well as a bit of a kind of uh, a why question. Why would it be that that cities and towns actually have done a, a, a pretty limited or poor job at protecting their historic landscapes? And so, uh, you know, help us dig into how this has come to come to be. Um, you talked at one point in the essay about a couple of key elements that that kind of helped give rise to this pattern of development that you say is is you know has not been really uh you know serving the 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 professed goals of communities to preserve what's special about them but has in fact led to pretty big uh you know changes in in what has made massachusetts communities uh special and given them their character yeah, I think it's worth uh, kind of zooming back at a minimum of 100 years to think a little bit about what's happened over the past century. First of all, you know, uh, when when we talk about preserving historic landscapes, you know, we might occasionally be talking about preserving something from the 1980s or, or relatively recently. But uh, in the popular imagination, and especially at the town level, you know, we're, we're usually referring to places or landscapes or development forms that are from the 19th century or earlier, right? We think about the colonial period, we think about 19th century Victorian architecture, the town commons, right? Those are all sort of features of the New England landscape that that uh, evolved prior to the 20th century. And prior to the 20th century, towns uh, and, and not only cities and towns, but uh, the state in general did very little uh, in terms of hard regulations of, of, of land use, right? Um, what regulated land use was largely the economics of transportation, industry, housing, and something changed in a big way in the mid 20th century. What changed was the structure of the Massachusetts economy, developed economies generally, uh, and in particular, the change in urban suburban dynamics, right? So places that we now think of as bedroom communities like the Route 128 suburbs, uh, prior to the you know middle third of the 20th century, were still pretty sleepy agricultural villages that didn't have a much of an economic growth model. With the rise of suburbanization, particularly driven by uh, automobility and post-World War II prosperity, consumer economy, those cities and towns suddenly discover that they've, they're sitting on a gold mine and they're sitting on a gold mine of potentially developable land, developable land uh, primarily for single family housing. And that's when the so-called uh, uh, golden horseshoe or golden semicircle of the Route 128 suburbs uh, becomes a driving force in the, in the land use economics of greater Boston. For these cities and towns, they realized that uh, it wasn't their historic character that was going to uh, uh, kind of uh, write the script for their future, right? You know, we weren't talking about water power mills anymore. We certainly weren't talking about smallholder agriculture, or, you know, uh, truck farms. Uh, we were talking about uh, an economy that was tied into professionals and commuters that were earning their living oftentimes in the city um, and buying and owning property in the suburbs. So those cities and towns were very happy to destroy their historic character, right? They permitted extensive large lot zoning uh, and more than permitted it, they in fact encouraged it, right? So we look at what the cities and towns were actually doing. 
they were not, uh, you know, they were not trying to mummify themselves into, a, you know, 19th century or, or, or far less 18th century form. Uh, and that's still in many ways what they're doing today, right? When we talk about uh, local control over zoning, over land use, over development, it may be that on the surface level, that's a fight about protection. Um, but in reality, mostly what it functions as is a, a, a political power about how and where and why to, to guide growth. And you talked in your essay uh, about, you know, certainly in the kind of post-World War II period, we think of the rise of the automobile and not just cars in a vacuum, but the roads to carry them, you know, the rise of the interstate highway system and and things that made uh, bedroom communities, you know, possible, uh, you know, they were, they became much more kind of, you know, you know, uh, connected to Boston and they could be connected. Uh, and then you also talked about the kind of in parallel, uh, the home finance system that you said favored the term used is spatial segregation. So um, that seems like a fancy word for the large lots you're talking about and the distance. So explain a little bit of that, because I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, when you say they sort of destroyed their historic character, I mean, since you say they're not going to continue to have little grist mills along the river or small farms. So, I mean, what would it, you know, what would have been the alternative to what they did or what is it that they did do? Because it sounds like they were just saying, well, this is just progress or growth. I mean, a lot of these communities, I think, probably didn't see this kind of population explosion or growth for a long period of time, and then suddenly they could. So I don't know that you're saying to preserve their character. I mean, it's not like you're arguing they should have just put put uh, walls up and not allowed new people there. It's more you're talking about how they grew, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think what's really important to say is, you know, uh, uh, particularly these bedroom communities, they were acting in an economically rational fashion, right? Like they saw the writing on the wall, right? The future of these towns was not certainly not going to be in smallholder agriculture. It wasn't going to be in, you know, small scale manufacturing. It was going to be in primarily uh, 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 residential real estate speculation. It was going to be in office parks and 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 things like that. And so uh, it's no surprise that they weren't particularly interested in, uh, you know, freezing their historical form, right? That would have been economic suicide in a way. Right. So, you know, to say that uh, lo local government is, you know, the best bulwark against uh, uh, his, uh, historic destruction uh, is to be naive about what the stakes of the game are, right? Uh, local authorities, local governments. Uh, relied upon uh, this this kind of response to structural economic changes. To go back to this question about spatial segregation of land use value, uh, many people today are, are are familiar with the infamous redlining maps, um, which of course were correlated uh, with uh, racially restrictive lending in the twentieth century. Uh, the racial dimension of this is is hugely important, though it's by far uh, uh, from the, the the sort of sole dimension in which uh, spatial segregation took place. Basically, uh, you know, in the twentieth century, the, the the attempt to create desirable neighborhoods was a function of many things. Right, it was a function of racial exclusion. It was a function of landscape types, right? Large lots with large setbacks and certain kinds of uh, aesthetic controls. Uh, it was a function of suburban amenities, uh, of foremost of which were school districts. 
Um, and so, you know, these sorts of things got composed together to create desirable neighborhoods. And that's still with us today, right? I mean, you can go on Zillow or, or you know, a real estate website and look at, right, how desirable is a neighborhood? Those patterns match to, to this day uh, some of the decisions that were being made uh, 50, 60, 75 years ago. And so, um, so sort of to, to get to what, you know, if we kind of, kind of can agree that just sort of holding the line against growth and development isn't wouldn't have been much of a of a of an approach to 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 moving ahead uh it's a question of how so you wrote again turning back to your essay you wrote if municipal planners in the 20th century had evinced even the slightest concern for historic preservation the present-day landscape of massachusetts would now look utterly different than it actually does so help us a little bit with that so let's let's imagine they had shown this this concern, uh, but there was still growth, you know, maybe at the level we saw. So how would things look different? What would be the alternative kind of way that we would have seen communities uh, sort of build out? So one kind of raw way of measuring this is uh, obviously residential density. Density is a tricky measure. There are lots of uh, ways to slice that statistic. Um, but first of all, uh, when we think about the actual density of, let's say, the 19th or 18th century uh, average New England town, uh, in many cases, it, is, it was denser than our cities and towns today. Uh, and that's a function of many things. First of all, right, you, you can only get around by walking or horse or uh, potentially by streetcar or interurban railway. Uh, you're not going to be able to spread out in the same way. Family composition was different. So, you know, if you dropped into a town center, uh, almost anywhere in Massachusetts, 100 or 150 years ago, there would have been more people living and, you know, having their main residential address within a quarter mile of that town center uh, than is likely to be the case today with a few exceptions. Uh, this, this question about managing density, right, is, you know, as population grows, it either has to get denser or it has to spread out. And what almost everywhere in Massachusetts, and in fact, almost everywhere in the United States chose to do was to spread out in the 20th century, which of course resulted in a new type of urban and suburban form, which was totally novel up to that point, right? It had nothing to do with the historic character. It could, in fact, was not possible before you had cars and cheap, quick building materials and, you know, the single family, uh, nuclear family is a, you know, a type of household that, that, that dominated uh, uh, family life. Um, what could have potentially looked differently is managing growth so that density increased in nodal centers. Uh, and by contrast, uh, you know, open spaces, peri-urban spaces, urban wildernesses were protected uh, in a, a more substantive fashion. Now, this is a debate that runs throughout 20th century planning, right? It's something that many, you know, uh, 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 kind of urban planners and uh, and their allies were concerned about in many different contexts, but different places do it better than others. And one of the things that is characteristic of many of the places that do it better is that they have more centralized control, right? It's very difficult for a municipality of maybe a thousand people, perhaps 10 or 20,000 people to govern or control the broad structural forces that are making these changes happen because it's just a scale mismatch. 
And I want to highlight that idea because I think it's really central to understanding what uh, went on here. In the 20th century, we have these changes in the economy, in technology, in family structure, and the demographics of uh, places like Massachusetts. And then we're asking these little tiny political units to accommodate or to respond to those changes. And uh, and they don't match, right? The geographies literally don't match. So, so think about home finance or building or you know the geographies of capital or immigration or industrial change. Those are not taking place, you know, within the 10 square miles of a of a municipal border. Um, so the the inability to govern at a regional level uh, sort of puts the puts the local authorities in the driver's seat and out of both their logical economic self-interest and out of coordination problems, out of competition between cities and towns to you know be the first one or the most exclusive one or the one that profits the most out of this these economic transformations they understandably leave historic preservation as a distant concern uh, relative to the many other things that they were trying to do. And um, and I guess in thinking about, you know, so I mean, it's interesting, you're saying that, you know, in the 1800s, these towns would have had, you know, lower population, but denser population. Uh, so I think that's maybe that's the part that maybe is a little counter counterintuitive to people. They, they think these towns have grown a lot. You know, they they had, you know, a fraction of the size population back in the day, and they must have had people all scattered about. But in reality, the scattering has happened through this development. And I guess I wonder if, you know, you said that, you know, some people talk about preserving the 1980s or even just take the post-war period. I think we've now come, these communities have come to see that what their character is, is this, you know, kind of largely single family housing and, you know, not something that sort of mimics, if at a smaller scale, the kind of urban sort of structure of cities. So they see that kind of denser development is kind of antithetical to what they are about. So they would kind of probably say we are, I mean, it's so preserving them, it's all a matter of judgment of, you know, what period of time are you talking about preserving? And and, um, you know, they may have some nice features and buildings that harken back to the 19th century or even earlier, but a lot of them, the sort of central thing they're trying to preserve seems to be this kind of non-urban feel that, that they have cultivated, uh, you know, since, since, since uh, World War II in the, in the kind of suburbanization and the way we've done it. But, but I wonder if you could talk a little about, um, you know, where we're at today, let's talk a little about that. You you wrote uh, in your piece about, as an example, the town of Middleborough, uh, sort of south of Boston, an area that has had a lot of farmland, still has farm some farmland. Um, and you used it as an example, and, and you mapped out, and people can see this, uh, your piece through our on our website, commonwealthmagazine.org, you, you, you mapped out over time where development took place in Middleborough and showed this kind of dispersion of, of, uh, of where housing got built. And now Middleborough is kind of standing as kind of maybe the, the kind of uh, is, is manning the, the ramparts for this battle against, you know, what has become maybe one of the biggest efforts 
uh, by state government to counter these broad trends you're talking about. And this is in the form of a law passed recently that's referred to as the MBTA Communities Act, which is kind of a, uh, a, a little bit of a long way of saying an effort to get towns to allow more density near town centers, or in this case, it's for communities served by the MBTA in some fashion or another, whether it's the main transit system or the commuter rail, uh, this law is requiring them to, to zone for uh, denser development in areas kind of close to their, their transit nodes. Um, and, you know, Middleborough is kind of saying, you know, we're not interested in that. Um, so, I don't know, just talk a little bit about how you see this kind of moment we're at now where some of the things that you're talking about or the arguments you're making are, it's taken a long time. They're finally, I think, getting some, having some currency and at, and at the state level. And this has been a long battle. I mean, we have this kind of tradition of strong local control here. Uh, the state government could certainly assert power over that. But as people often say, the legislators are simply representatives of the local communities. So, you know, you might see them as these big kind of, bullies on Beacon Hill that are going to ride roughshod over communities. That's not really been how it's played out. They've, they've been very deferential to what their communities and their voters want to see happen. So I don't know if these are even just baby steps or, or how you'd characterize it, but the state is trying to, to assert some, uh, you know, sort of a countervailing approach to all this. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out. But I wonder, is this some, it, it strikes me, there's some like version of that old concept of the tragedy of the commons going on here, right? That each community does what it thinks is best. And what the state is saying is that as you build out in that way, we're not seeing enough housing built in this extremely expensive market. And we're certainly not seeing housing built at anything kind of like more moderate uh, price points. And ultimately, this is, you know, hampering our economy. So we're kind of like, we're kind of doing ourselves in, you know, as we all Kind of go about our business at the local level and it's exactly that that coordination question right and it comes back to what i am most deeply interested in right is 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 what is the geography of a political community right somebody who lives in middleborough let's say today of course is in an economic union certainly with the greater boston region uh with the whole United States, for that matter, in fact, with an international system of, of finance and trade. Uh, and to say that, you know, well, it really should only be the few tens of thousands of people who live within these you know, historic borders that were laid out in the 18th century that should get to decide how to control these forces doesn't really make sense. Um, and I don't want to, you know, Middleborough, uh, I don't want to pick on. Uh, the, the same is true of nearly every uh, city and town in Massachusetts. I, of course, use them as an example, as you noted, because they're uh, one of the, the municipalities that has um, most clearly articulated their opposition to the MBTA communities law. Um, but, you know, if we if if we were to zoom back 100 or 150 years to Middleborough, right, nobody lived in sprawling developments every if you lived in Middleborough, you either lived within walking or horse or, you know, train distance of your place of employment, or you lived on a large farm, probably in a multi-generational family with, you know, eight or a dozen people uh, in your household. Uh, that's not how most people in Middleborough lived, uh, you know, since the middle 20th century, when the town started to gain its own zoning and land use control po powers. So 
Uh, part of how I wanted to frame this is, you know, there are a lot of people, uh, obviously the legislature passed this, this uh, MBTA communities law. There are lots of uh, both individuals and uh, uh, advocacy groups that recognize exactly this problem. Um, but what I wanted to flag is a lot of those reformers kind of will say like, well, you know, who cares about historic preservation, right? Like there are other things that are more important. We need housing equality. We need affordable housing. We need desegregation. We need, uh, you know, we need communities that, that are uh, uh, more energy efficient. Um, and I agree with all of those things, certainly. But I also wanted to say like, we don't actually have to throw out the concern about historic preservation. I actually do care about historic preservation. And it turns out if we do care about it, we actually need some of this kind of, you know, big, bad regional control, uh, which uh, I think most people think of as potentially the enemy or the, uh, you know, the, the uh, corroder of historic integrity. In fact, uh, you know, if we are being sincere of, about wanting to, to preserve historic landscapes, uh, we actually need that. So and there's a this 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 coordination problem. Uh, there's a there's an early 20th century planner uh, by the name of John Nolan. He was trained at Harvard. Uh, worked was a, one of the early successors of the, the Olmsted firm. Um, and he 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 gave this little metaphor uh, in one of his publications, and he, he describing exactly this problem, saying, you know, imagine a big house uh, where everybody just, uh, gets to decide what happens in their room and, you know, makes no consideration of maintaining the whole house or what the walls are made out of, or, you know, what the plumbing system of the house is, is like, of course that house would, you know, fall into, in, into collapse and disappear quite quickly, you know, at a grander scale, that's what is, ha what happened in the 20th century and continues to happen with our urban regions, right? So much of the ability to control, spaces, uh, land use is at the, you know, in this metaphor, the level of the room. Uh, and we have relatively weak power to figure out how those, all those pieces fit together. And um, I mean, do you think uh, uh, we are at a certain, I don't know, to use the kind of cliche term inflection point? I mean, does this MBTA Communities Act, you know, signal a final, uh, you know, sort of a realization at the state level that, you know, this this structure, you know, of kind of each room or community kind of going its own way, you know, just is not uh, is not serving kind of a 21st century economy or 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 the way of thinking about land use. Um, I mean, that's certainly what a lot of people argue. But uh, on the other hand, inertia is a powerful force and. Um, we're not sure yet that this, you know, we, the verdict is very much out on what this, this one law will do. Yeah. Is it an inflection point? It's hard to tell. Uh, certainly the cost of housing, I think, has been the primary driver of a new political urgency in this issue. But, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a historian. Uh, I'm working on a book that's about, you know, 150 years of attempting to solve this geographic problem in the Boston region and elsewhere. And history is littered with attempts to figure this out. What's so striking, and I actually think is a curious historic phenomenon, is the way that this mythology, this uh, ideology of local control really persists through the decades. Um, it is a powerful, powerful myth, right? This idea of the virtues of local control, that especially in a place like New England, where you know, municipal independence dates back centuries. 
um, this idea that uh, you know that that's that's the most democratic, that's the most participatory uh, 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 form of governance is really uh, kind of situated in a lot of people's minds. Um, and of course, the you know there are there are uh, persistent uh, economic incentives to continue that, right? If you are uh, if you were in a town that's fortunate enough to have a relatively affluent population and uh, um, you know relatively few demands on its public services, then you understandably will want to continue the privileges afforded to you by that position. You know, one of the the uh, uh, kind of things that got me thinking about this piece more than a year ago was I was joking with some friends that you know okay suburbanites you say you know you want to you want to keep the the historic character of massachusetts intact by by preserving local prerogative over land use so i expect that you'll also you know not use logan airport uh not drive uh not buy bananas in the in the winter uh you know all of the other things about modern uh modern life that have also changed in that time and of course you know, that's that's deliberately absurd. And you can think of this as a kind of like historical arbitrage, right? Suburbanites in particular want the advantages of being connected to a big, complicated modern city with, you know, that itself is connected to a global financial and trade system, uh, but they don't want to pay for it. <laughs> they don't want the downsides of it. They want to continue to erect these oftentimes artificial or imaginary borders that allow them to... Uh, uh, kind of get the best out of that system while the, not having to deal with the worst of that system. So, you know, I, I think of it in that way, right? These, these arguments towards historic preservation are oftentimes in bad faith because they're made by people who are maybe not actually that concerned about, you know, turning back the clock and living in a, in a pre-modern society. They just want to perpetuate a certain type of spatial privilege that's encoded into those municipal boundaries. Well, it's not, uh, it's not an altogether encouraging picture, but, uh, but as they say, you need to sort of lay out and uh, describe a problem, you know, if there's any hope, any uh, hope of, of getting it addressed. So I think you've certainly have done, done a good job of that and provocatively so. You know, I, I, I would say, I think one of the things that has always stood in the way of regional reforms is, uh, I, I would describe it as a, as a kind of mindset or per, perhaps an ideology, right? People still think of themselves as belonging to these small communities, right? You know, uh, I live in Melrose, uh, right? I've, I've, if I'm talking to somebody who's familiar with Boston, they say, oh yeah, you know, I'm a Melrose resident. Of course, that's where I vote. That's where I pay taxes. Uh, that's where my kids will go to school when they're old enough for school. Um, you know, and so it's like, it's it's baked into to the geography of how we think of where we are. Not too many people think of themselves as like, I'm from metropolitan Boston, right? Even though that's actually, you know, that's where I, that's where I work. That's where I shop. That's where my friends are, right? There's, uh, we don't, necessarily imagine ourselves as being part of these uh, more modern uh, urban and regional geographies. And if we can't imagine ourselves as part of them, it's very hard to make political decisions for them. It's very hard to actually create a governance structure for them. 
now, how do you transform people's hearts and minds? Uh, that's a question I'll leave uh, uh, maybe to somebody uh, with a bit more persuasive power than I have. Uh, but I do think that it, it really is one of the, um, the things standing between us and some of the potential solutions to these problems. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Garrett. And I want to thank you for a great conversation and a great essay on these uh, issues that folks can read on the Commonwealth Magazine website. Um, so thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a real privilege to be here and I appreciate the invitation. And thank you all for listening to uh, another episode of the podcast. We will see you next week. Thank you.